This is the Decoding Obesity Podcast, where we simplify, demystify, and decode obesity, helping you lose weight and feel great. So gear up for a fascinating journey through this ever-evolving field, and let's see what we find. And please remember that the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice. Don't forget to visit our website, www.decodingobesity.com, for show notes and more info. And now, here's your host of the Decoding Obesity Podcast, Dr. Avishkar Sabarwal. Hi, everyone. Before we dive into today's episodes, I want to extend a personal invitation to you all to join me in my next Decoding Obesity Hangout. This is a free meetup where you'd get to discuss your challenges in your weight loss journey, find accountability partners, and network with people in different stages of their journey. So head on over to www.decodingobesity.com forward slash hangout and get signed up for our next Decoding Obesity Hangout. This is 100% free and you get to hang out with others in the same boat. Remember, together we can overcome obesity. Welcome to another episode of the Decoding Obesity Podcast. Man has always had a quest to improve his health and life. Before the advent of modern medicine, there existed many ancient systems. Ayurveda was one of the prominent systems which was developed in ancient India. There were no clinical trials, of course, at that time, but a keen eye for observing various phenomena. While I strongly believe in evidence-based medicine and modern therapeutics, I think that these systems can still offer a lot as far as leading a healthy lifestyle goes. I have with me Dr. Sirichand Khalsa today. Dr. Khalsa has had a lifelong interest in mindful living as a basis for long-term vitality of mind, body, and spirit. She completed a residency in internal medicine at the Mayo Clinic in 2005 and is both certified in internal medicine, integrative medicine, and hospice and palliative medicine. Dr. Khalsa has deepened her studies on health and healing by becoming a yoga instructor, a Reiki master, and participating in a two-year full-time program on Ayurveda at the Ayurvedic Institute in Albuquerque and in India. Serving as an integrative medicine primary care physician and instructor at the University of Arizona Integrative Medicine Fellowship for Physicians and a consultant to other medical practices, she has dedicated her career to promoting an increased understanding in clinical medicine of the link between long-term vitality and the daily choices we make. She is currently focusing her energy to support physicians who want to expand their personal understanding of the new ways of healing. I think these are old ways and not new ways through an experiential process utilizing techniques in Ayurveda, yoga, mindfulness, and plant-based nutrition. Welcome, Sirichan. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, so I'm very, very curious. You know, you started with allopathic medicine, and that is so evidence-based. What really led you to actually go into Ayurveda? You know, it's such a fascinating uh, journey, the way life lands us in certain situations that expand our awareness. So I actually grew up in the East Coast and in a suburb of Washington, D.C. And I always lament, I went to a STEM magnet high school there. It's very prestigious, very high pressure. And by the time I got to college, so from my high school, 100% of people were pre-something in college. So everyone went to college, which is a little unheard of. And then even within that, everyone was going on into medicine law, business, IT, which was not as prominent in the 90s. But by the time I'd reached my third year of college in pre-med, I was physically uh, very stressed. And I started experiencing this mind-body connection in a very pronounced way in my digestion. So I went to the student health clinic. You know, I'm pre-med. I don't know much about alternative things. I didn't grow up in a sure. household where it was very prominent or present. And the physician, I always say it, it's like a moment with fate. The physician in the clinic said, here's this very potent sedative, which I think will work just great for you. And of course, I was always a little bit of a maverick. And I left <laughs> the clinic and I thought, I don't think that's what's right for me. I think I need to find another way. And so even in this pre-med time, I had started to look into learning more and understanding more. And I found myself in a metaphysical bookstore, not far from the university. This is at University of Virginia. 
And I pulled this book off the shelf that was Ayurveda for self-healing. And this would have been about 1990. So it would be a long time ago now. And so uh, <laughs> I know I always say I'm a little older than I look. But that really began to open my eyes that there was more than what I had been led to believe about health and healing and that the origins of imbalance probably were more important to look at than just an end symptom or an end outcome. And that was really the beginning of my relationship to Ayurveda. And it's it's taken me into many wondrous <laughs> nooks and crannies of the planet and in my own inner being as well. And so that's kind of how I got started. And in many ways, I had thought maybe I would be better off being a naturopath. And right. so be the, you know, just knowing that I had always had this interest in these whole person systems that have really sort of dramatically different perspectives on health and healing than the allopathic system. But when I went to go spend time at the naturopathic schools, I had all this science in me already. I had all this <laughs> desire for evidence and, you know, studies. And I think now right. it's much different. But 25 years ago, there was more of a pride in we don't need as much evidence. We're taking pulling from traditions and we're just, you know, synergizing that way. So I found myself in a really un kind of a uncomfortable place in that I wanted the depth, the science, the classic training, the ability to treat anything that allopathic training would give me. But at the same time, I had a deep and abiding respect for these other systems. And so in many ways, my training and my career within medicine has been a little push-pull. And I've tried <laughs> to, these days, it's a little less in the clinical and allopathic. You know, I, I have 20 years, I saw patients and existed in a purely allopathic outpatient setting in varying capacities. And finally, there just came a juxtaposition where after all that time, I said, I think I'm ready now to sort of embrace these principles much more fully. And in many ways, that has led me to sort of stepping out of that environment, the insurance-based environment that has more emphasis right. on coding disease and instincts of imbalance. <laughs> yeah, let's not go to coding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't get me started. Oh, anyone interested in lifestyle medicine knows, like, we've got work to do and getting right. these things paid for. No, it's very interesting because, you know, even in pre-med, a lot of times people, when they want to get into medical school, they kind of do some sort of research or they'll be shadowing a physician. And all throughout, they will be a part of the traditional research that we do. And, you know, Ayurveda is not about research. I mean, I think there's some research probably going on in India now. Mm -hmm. But traditionally, it was not research-based, right? It was an experience-based practice, and that was just passed down the generation. So did you have that conflict initially, or did you ever feel that, what am I doing here? Why am I reading this book? Or did you actually embrace or try those principles that you found in that book and you found actually help from that and that's why you kind of moved into the space? I think that's such a, a beautiful question. I think in many ways, I sit in the conflict. So this would be a meditative principle, meaning we learn to go beyond just black or white thinking in mindfulness or in meditation or in yogic yeah. traditions. But I love science. I mean, I love evidence. I love when theories can be proven. I love when I can say things with certainty and feel like. But as I went on in my career, I'll be honest, I realized that a lot of what I wanted to hold as paradigm and as the, you know, the basis, the foundations of truth of how I was practicing in that allopathic model there was some questions beneath what I was learning. And as, you know, certain pharmaceuticals would be pulled off the market or it, it really did take me, I, you know, I think some of the younger doctors are there much quicker than I was, but it really took me a long time to appreciate that a lot of what I was doing was chasing the problem in the practice. I would catch people way far into the journey of imbalance and 
what I really began to appreciate was that by learning and the pillars of lifestyle medicine, which I imagine you've brought up here of many course, times, yeah. <laughs> it's very interesting. And I always like to mention it because I'm not always sure everyone knows this. So Dr. Dean Ornish is ostensibly sort of one of the pioneers in oh, yeah. lifestyle medicine. And he actually, in his newer books and in some online education, talks about how he was in a very difficult state in medical school, almost, he quotes himself as saying suicidal. Yeah, I've heard that talk. Yeah, I've heard his talk. Absolutely. And he actually walked home one day, and his sister had a teacher from India, Swami (laughs) Sachinanda, in the living room. And the Swami basically gave him the ideas for many of the programs that he went on to develop that have this evidence that we're looking at. Now, here's where things start to get kind of interesting to me, is that in many ways, I think the human consciousness is capable of very vast amounts of connections that a linear evidence-based model has a hard time grasping. And I recently read an article, which I actually, I think you'd enjoy. I'll make sure I get a copy. You could even put it in your show notes. Sure, absolutely. Treatment and Reversal of Chronic Disease Recommendations from the Lifestyle Medicine Research Summit. But a couple of things from this article jumped out at me, and one of them was that people are beginning to understand how complex the origins of imbalance are, whether it's genomics, epigenetics, dysbiosis, inflammatory pathways, detoxification pathways, methylation pathways, And that they're going to probably start developing research models using AI that take us out of such linear relationships to outcomes. And these, even though we use epigenetics as, you know, we remove the confounding variable, remove the things that seem to be similar enough to try to find these links of where disease is coming from. If we use a system like Ayurveda beneath that, we know then there's so much more than what we're looking at. And that was the real eye-opener for me, is that there's probably going to be an intersection with AI research and these traditional Chinese medicine and Ayurveda that absolutely fascinates me. I always tell people, I'm not entirely sure what's going to emerge through the course (laughs) of my lifetime, (laughs) <laughs> but that would be, you know, I mean, we don't have hovercrafts, but we do have talking phones. So, right. you know, I'm not totally <laughs> sure what's all going to come to place. But this article talked about, I was just thinking about what was the term they were using? Systems epidemiology, where they're looking at these complex players in the basis of health. And then it allows for a research model that could substantiate Ayurveda which at the moment is difficult because it's really, as Heraclides said, the, the Greek philosopher, you never step in the same river twice. No Ayurvedic evaluation is the same ever. In our allopathic model, it's high blood sugar, high... It has to be reproducible. It has to be. And this is the difficulty is that Ayurveda takes so many variables into account, including your age, the region you live in, the time of year various factors. And I think that when I think about, you know, the translational model, it's not easy. I don't envy the people that ultimately are going to be the ones figuring (laughs) that out. I do have a master's degree in science and certainly appreciate the complexity of trying to develop reproducible, standardized pathways within Ayurveda with the current methodology and diagnostic tools that we have i think we're going to have to take some leaps that perhaps i think it's going to be a marriage of both and at some point in time yeah you know it's funny because when i started my medical journey i was a very staunch believer in allopathic medicine i still am i don't doubt one bit because it's all research-based and i know we had had this conversation before and i I told you that i very strongly believe in evidence-based medicine but i think what has happened is what i've realized is that yes for most of the diseases yes we can find new medicines but as far as 
the overall, the preventative aspect of it goes. I think that still remains the very, very basic in terms of the lifestyle changes that you need to make. And I feel that that part of the allopathic medicine is probably a bit lacking. We have research on it, but I think whatever research you see, they end up pointing to some of the principles that were already practiced by these ancient methods. So really, it is a marriage of both. And that's the way I look at it. I could be completely wrong, because I'm not trained in any of these uh, systems (laughs) other than allopathic medicine. So but we'll talk more about that. I mean, I think that there's so much value. It was only recently that I was talking to someone and I said, we do realize that colonoscopy, PSA, mammograms, pap smears are all early detection. They're not prevention. They're prevention of progression, but they're (laughs) not true prevention in the sense of the disease never happened. So we have even in our psyche, the nomenclature that this is our preventive medicine. And that was a, it was just recently that that revelation just kind of dawned on me. And I thought, what if we really had better data and better methodology for keeping track of how our lifestyle decisions impacted the outcome? And we know that, for example, A-scores and trauma impact cancer and cardiovascular disease and addiction. This is a really intangible thing that's probably being mediated at the epigenetic level. We know that exercise in breast cancer prevents the occurrence. Solid data. We know that circadian rhythm and sleep predisposes people who have shift work for cancer. And obesity. I mean, there's data. So what's interesting to me is like, how do we really start bridging what we know are the causal agents into pathways for prevention that insurance will pay for. And even if we don't (laughs) call it Ayurveda, there's so much work just to be done there, if that makes sense. And so I try not to get too locked into semantics with people because I think there's so much room still for what we actually know to be implemented. Now, I believe that Ayurvedic a principle sit underneath all of that knowledge and insight and can guide research and can guide future direction. But until we're really even looking at the, as you well know, the obesity epidemic, the stress epidemic, the social connectivity epidemic or lack therein, the diet. I think all of these are so interconnected and that's the whole thing because yeah. um, you can break it into different components and look at them each component separately or you can look at the whole being as one whole and i think that's where the the big difference is and i was going to ask you how do you think is ayurveda different from conventional medicine in terms of let's just talk about obesity how do you think that's different how is the approach different well you know it's really fascinating because each person is going to have a very different type of obesity, if you will, in many ways. I mean, there are principles of obesity, but as we understand obesity more, we understand the link to emotional eating, for example. So let's say someone came to see me who had a link to a traumatic event that had disordered their relationship to hunger and the leptin ghrelin access is sort of permanently disordered. So they don't have that same sense of satiety. We might look at teas that kindle their digestion. So this is an Ayurvedic term, but that's the best way I can change it. Yeah, no, no, I want you to be frank about it because really, honestly, this is new to me. And so I think the right way in science is to be open to all ideas and to test them. That's the original way of science and not dismiss ideas. So I don't want to dismiss anything. Right, right. I want to be open to ideas, but obviously, like I, said, I believe in evidence-based. So yeah. as, long, <laughs> as long as they're as evidence-based. Yeah. <laughs> yes, so, so, but I'm open to new ideas. They should. We should always be open to new ideas. Exactly. And so from the standpoint, of, let's just take that one person who we know there's a link to emotional eating, you can have two directions of treatment. One is perhaps utilizing modern obesity medicines and therapeutics. And concurrently, you can have a therapeutic model that utilizes yoga, breathing exercises that increase metabolism, 
botanicals that might support relaxation and increased awareness, shifting their consciousness. You might look at, there are certain therapeutics that sort of invigorate the body. So it's infrared sauna is what we think of in evidence-based side, but there's treatments that are just botanicals in a steam bamboo hut. (laughs) And, you know, there's (laughs) these things that work to get the body moving back into states of balance. And it doesn't easily translate into words that marry nicely. These are concepts that are like, okay, how... So one of the things that has come up for me is people say, well, you've taken almost three years of full time to study Ayurveda plus all your other degrees. And I say, yeah, I'm in the 45th grade. I mean, it's no (laughs) joke. So how do we simplify some of these theories for people who might like to use them and do them safely? Meaning if you're going to have botanicals, how might they combine with existing pharmaceuticals that someone's using? And this is actually research that's going on in India, fortunately. These are questions that are being looked at as efficacies being shown of this combined or integrative approach where you're trying to use the best of evidence-based medicine and lean into some things that were born through thousands of years of observation of the human condition. I mean, I don't think we can totally negate the scientific method of eras past. They didn't have (laughs) quite the same tools to look inside at the cellular level, but they could observe and probably had more keen external observational skills than we do. We rely a bit more on internal, but maybe there were cues that they were utilizing that we're not as familiar with or don't need in the same way. No, no, I I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's very interesting. They don't the terminology doesn't easily match. And like I said, I'm probably an early responder. You know, I think (laughs) as time goes by, some of the things that really make sense will probably trickle into as people have interest and they study them and research is published, there'll be more avenues for the allopathic community to adopt things that, that work, that truly work and aren't, unfortunately, especially in the weight loss arena, there's so many difficult conversations to have with people who've been led down a rabbit hole of promises. That's true. From a that's why I started this podcast, because I don't want to be presenting yeah. some information that's actually misinformation. Exactly. And so I don't have like, this is my botanical that I sell you for $18 and boom, you're going to lose 10 pounds. <laughs> I don't think in those terms at all. It, but there are people who do, who call it Ayurveda, which is extremely unfortunate to me because they are, you know, they're doing it a disservice because, oh, there's some interest. And then someone's friend or loved one or family member has this supplement. Oh, take this. And really, to speak fairly to this, and I obviously, as you can tell, I'm a firm believer in botanical medicine, but the way that some of these, particularly weight loss and particularly hormone enhancing for men, I'll just leave it there, products, tend to have pharmaceuticals in them. So they're made in foreign countries. And the way they get their effect is by having pharmaceuticals put into these botanical blends, unbeknownst to the person who's taking them. And again and again, They do the study where they take the supplement from wherever and they send it to the lab to get the chromography or whatever. (laughs) I don't actually know how they identify all the things (laughs) in these supplements, but they send it off and they get the report back and it says, wow, there's the presence of a statin. There's a presence of Viagra. There's the presence of stimulants, very potent stimulants that can impact the heart. So we have to be very, very prudent, particularly in the weight loss arena in picking yeah. up a supplement that says Ayurvedic weight loss supplement, there's really no circumstance where I would recommend that, to be perfectly honest with you. One really needs to have a conversation with a qualified Ayurvedic practitioner who has enough training under their belt to <laughs> say, no, we don't use these packaged formulas from, unfortunately, mostly from India that you know have these... Yeah. Manufacturing Absolutely. No, no, practices. I, I hear you completely. Yeah. 
So <laughs> this is a real challenge of it. I'm not saying this is an easy pathway or an easy walk through for sure. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about, you know, some of the healthy eating practices that Ayurveda or or the ancient Indian practices advocate. And yeah. um, because, you know, it's interesting, I was actually looking at them. And I think some of them have been given some different names now. And there's data to suggest that they may be good. But they were actually very ancient practices that have been practiced. And I'm not saying just India or just Ayurveda, but across different ancient cultures. It is so amazing to think about that humankind has been trying to figure out how to digest food from the get-go. <laughs> so <laughs> I think a lot of these principles, some of them may seem like common sense. And this is the dilemma is that I think some of our common sense has been clouded by modern marketing. There's right. a beautiful HBO series. It's now many years old, but it's called Weight of the Nation. And it's free on YouTube. And in it, they talk about the marketing that's done for young kids in the cartoon, you know, on the Saturday morning. Yeah. And I think back, so when I grew up, there was only four TV channels back in the old days, you know, <laughs> only four TV channels. And so we didn't have quite as much option. But a lot of what I learned about nutrition and food, because it was never taught in school, it was never taught in school. And so basic nutritional principles, I never learned. So you get these impressions about what, where happiness is, you know, the happy meal, where somebody who's smiling is feeling good, is going to have a Coke and a smile. You know, the <laughs> Tony the Tiger, they're great. You know, these oh, yeah. um, cornflakes. All of this marketing sits inside our psyche now that I think subconsciously sometimes redirects our natural instincts away from what is healthy and normal. And so right. from an Ayurvedic perspective, there's a couple of things I could share. The first one, which I think is very interesting, is to stop eating before we're full. Yeah, that's very cool. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I think even in the Japanese culture, it says that you have to stop when you're 80% full or something mm -hmm. to that effect. Yep. And it's very interesting because this is something that I was also told by my parents, my grandparents when I was young that, you know, just wait. And we know that this works because you, when you don't eat till you're like all the way full, all the way up, it takes time for your hormones to actually start acting and act on your brain to actually give you the signal that you're full. And so, you know, we're discovering this, but just by observation in those times, people knew about this. Yeah, exactly. And so it's an interesting thing. They say too ungly which is basically, and I don't think your listeners can see this, but two ungali is you put your hands together like you're catching water, and the amount of food that can sit in your two hands is technically the portion size for you that should make you approximately two-thirds full. And, um, well, this is pretty mind-boggling because everything <laughs> in modern era is it's buffet supersized. style, supersize and buffet and so I think this is really a very important distinction is beginning to develop enough awareness that we need to stop eating before food coma arrives or that what full feels sure. like may not actually be ideal for our digestive capacity. And I've often wondered about how we would study, is there more food allergies or sensitivities if there's less hydrochloric acid to go around? You know, there's these questions I have yeah. that haven't been looked at, of course. Another one that's quite interesting is that invigorating spices are used in between the meal to help promote digestion. So you might have ginger, fennel, cumin tea. So we these are things we classically cook with, but in right. Ayurveda, these things can be made into teas and very safe, very easy. There's generally considered very safe all the culinary botanicals. And so these are teas that are sipped as warm or, you know, warm to hot. And this is said to kind of help promote digestive capacity so that we have more intuition and connection to uh, choices that would align to our, our own health. Um, another thing that's kind of interesting is that in Ayurveda, they say that 
digestion can mimic the movement of the sun. And so the sun is at its peak in the midday, so that it's considered in Ayurveda ideal to do your primary meal or your larger meal with the rhythm of the sun. And so this would put your larger meal ideally from 10 to 2. And right. of course, in today's world, it's almost impossible. Most people do their larger meal in the evening. And I'd love to hear your point of view about the data. I'm almost sure I've seen studies that say calories consumed before a certain hour versus after tends to lead to more weight gain, even if it's the same caloric input. Is that right? I believe I remember that correctly. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right because, you know, there's data to suggest that the breakfast has to be a heavy meal, the lunch has to be slightly lighter, and the dinner has to be the lightest meal. And that's very true. And not only that, you know, there's also data on time-restricted eating. Now we talk about eating for a certain number of hours, but there's also this uh, chrononutrition, as we call it. Basically, eating during the daytime is actually better than eating after sunset or whatever. So it's interesting because, you know, when I was studying for lifestyle medicine, one of the, the lectures that I listened to, I'm forgetting the name of the physician, and he mentioned that I never recommend my patients to eat, I think, after 5 p.m. or 3 p.m. in the evening. And that's very interesting because, you know, I was also reading a bit in Charak Samhita because I always want to go back to the source and see mm -hmm. what I can find. And it mentioned something to that effect that you should not eat after dark, and so it was very interesting to me, you know, really what we're finding in science now. And this is this is backed by data. So there was a, a scientist, Dr. Sachitanand Panda, who's doing a lot of research on circadian rhythm. His research is primarily on mice. But what he found was that for the same calorie intake, the mice that ate ad libitum, that is, they ate whenever they wanted to eat, but it was the same amount of food that they ate. It was a, a specific amount of food. If they ate in the odd hours versus when they were normally awake, they actually had a higher weight compared to those who ate within their normal waking hours. So mm. it's very fascinating that it does play into all of this. So yeah, I think this is something really amazing. Yeah, the important thing here is that we don't have an intuitive relationship to this. We conceptually... When you, as a clinician, speak to somebody and say, ideally, if you have your larger meal at lunch and eat minimally after the sun sets, they're going to go, I have to rework my whole life. In some ways, we have to be very sympathetic and pragmatic to how people live in the modern era. And some people are getting home with the kids at 7 p.m. after sports and career needs and they've run their errands and they're hungry at 7 p.m. or you know they yeah. they haven't eaten they didn't get a break in their work day so this is that translational piece which is you know in, in Ayurveda and yoga communities we say living in the ashram which is when you you're very rhythmic in your day and you have a lot of control over when you eat and when you meditate but the householder the person who's sort of living in the you know, the zaniness of day-to-day -day <laughs> life has to navigate this in their own unique way. And I think that's, it's so important to be empathetic to that and understand that there are ideal recommendations and then there's like the current state and how do we sort of bridge these two so that someone feels like they can take actionable steps and not go, well, that's never going to be you know, my Instagram worthy Ayurveda life, if you will. <laughs> like, you know. No, yeah, that's what I find very fascinating about all of these ancient systems. Like I mentioned, I think as far as prevention goes, they looked at the human body as a whole, instead mm -hmm. of looking at piecemeal. So they talk about foods and not components of foods, even in Ayurveda. So that's very important because when you're talking about a food as a whole, that's very different from when you're talking about carbs, proteins, mm -hmm. you know, sugars, and you're talking about fats. So it's very different from that. So, you know, I was watching that documentary, very interesting documentary, and Dr. Campbell was on it. And he, you know, he's one of those pioneers in the whole food plant-based world. And he was talking about really the, the bioavailability of different micronutrients that's there in whole foods. It's very different from what you would get from therapeutics. And I think he gave a very specific example of vitamin C. And when you look at the label of that particular thing, I'm forgetting what the food product was, but he said that actually 
when you look at what's on the label is very different from what's actually absorbed and what's bioavailable the the person when they uh, when they take the whole food so i think that's really key because looking at foods as whole systems is very very different than looking at its microstructure and breaking it down mm-hmm. yeah this is a wonderful observation and we even know there's a number of studies that look at the bioavailability of curcumin from turmeric being relatively modest to minimal, and it's enhanced by one of the bioactives in black pepper, piperine. And so we look at that translationally and we'd say, well, what about if somebody looked at it with cumin and coriander? And we know that curcumin and the curcuminoid family is incredibly impactful to the body. The bioavailability, once it's in, once that piece is navigated, the impact of curcumin to many of the body systems, they believe mediated through the NF-kappa B yep. pathway. Now it's all the rage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who wouldn't want that, right? I mean, so we look at it and we say, well, what if there was this understanding that because life was different, because there was more observation of the day-to-day, there was less distraction. And as a small aside, even in our household with COVID, we've had a quarantine. My mom has had COVID. So we've been in quarantine for about a month now, basically self-imposed. And um, what's happened is we've become very observant of how little things impact us. Whereas before, you're just busy. It's about the mo- Modern world keeps us at a pretty rapid pace. But now I'm noticing these little things that move the needle pretty significantly that before I would just breeze through. I'd be on my way to something else. I'd be doing this or that. But being home, of course, we're still busy in our own way, but being home, you just have a a better lens to do that self-looking. And then I imagine, well, what if all these modern distractions that we have now weren't there for my whole life? What kind of observations would I be inclined to notice? And so I think that's where much of the recommendations within these systems like traditional Chinese medicine and Ayurveda come from, is these multitudes of observation of, well, when I eat whole foods and I combine it this way, this happens for me. I sleep better, or I'm more cranky, or I feel heavier, or I don't have as regular bowel movement. And so I think it's really fascinating. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think that's very true. You have to really look at the differences that occur with different foods that you take. So, Shrishan, what can people take from this? What should they do? I'm, and I'm, we're going to talk about obesity because I try to, you know, focus on obesity. Mm-hmm. How can they take these principles into their daily lives? And obviously, you know, if they need to see somebody as a specialist, I always advocate you should go ahead and see an obesity specialist or whatever specialist that you need to see for your weight loss or for your better health. But what are some of the things that people can start at home really at this point in time? Well, I think that the beautiful thing about Ayurveda is that many elements in it are quite straightforward. And so I'm sure you've spoken to this, but one thing someone can do relatively early in their journey, and of course, this is not a substitute for medical advice in any way, or to undermine anyone's therapeutic relationship that they might have with a provider. But you can start a journal, you can start a process of observing. And in Ayurveda, we look at three kind of key factors in terms of a food journal. One is uh, regularity of bowel movements. The second is energy level after eating and several hours after eating and emotional state after eating. And sometimes this process of introspection actually begins to help bring awareness to where we have more intuitive relationship to how we can make the changes we need to make to bring ourselves back into health. And this is then what allow to me, this is what then allows for the plan you've created with your provider or someone you're working with closely to get you the calories, the macros, the movement, to have the bandwidth, resilience, the resolve to really enact that plan. And I think that that mindful quality of 
relating to the impact of what we're eating to the things that actually we value starts to help us understand when I make these shifts, these things shift too. And this has value beyond just losing pounds. It gives me more resilience. It gives me better sleep, gives me more patience with my family. You know, we know that certain foods we might be reaching for shift the mood temporarily, but then we find ourselves back in perhaps even a more pronounced state we were trying to not be in. Another thing that I think is really useful is the concepts of mindfulness when we're eating. Yeah, we did an episode on mindfulness, had a wonderful episode, and we actually did a mindful eating session on the episode. So that was fascinating. Yeah. So, you know, setting a timer for 20 minutes, eating with your non-dominant hand, learning a mindfulness technique or doing, you know, I encourage your listeners to go back in time, listen to that episode and do the meditation because even just one meditation can change neuroplasticity, can start to shift our awareness because I'm not saying it's all just mind over matter. It's such a, I would never reduce obesity to something like that. But in many ways, it's all been a series of decisions and physiology and genetics that have landed someone to a place where their weight is not ideal. So we had to sort of look at all of the things we can do to shift that back into where balance resides. And so many of these things within Ayurveda um, help move that epigenetic hormonal uh, mechanism. And I think, too, if they can't, Look to having smaller meals in the evening or shifting the day and trying one of these tea blends. And you can even just start with something simple like ginger root. So you just take ginger root, fresh ginger root, cut it, boil it for about five to 10 minutes till the tea water, the water that it's in. So I would say maybe an, let's say a half teaspoon. It depends how potent you like your ginger tea, but half teaspoon of ginger tea and half cup, I mean, in one to two cups of water boil it for five to 10 minutes and the water will turn sort of an amber, yellow amber. And this is something you can sip in the morning and through the day. Sometimes people say, oh, that really helped my appetite when I thought I was hungry. I went for the tea and hydrating instead. Or when they reach for that soda in the mid-afternoon because their energy's dipping, the ginger tea or this non-caffeinated chai blends that have clove, ginger, cardamom, fennel, um, black pepper, these invigorating spices, gave them that boost of energy that they were reaching for sugar or caffeine for. So these would be a couple of things, small measures, but these are all things that would be taught in Ayurveda that they're sort of in their own way hodgepodged around. You might read an article where one of these things would be mentioned or yeah. yeah, and I think that's where it gets confusing. Uh, listeners, if you want to, to uh, listen to my episode on mindful eating, then go to episode number 22. That's where we do a live, well, it's not live anymore, but we do a session on mindful eating while on the podcast episode. That's fantastic. Yes, please, everyone go back and do that exercise. I can't speak enough to the value of mindfulness when it comes to um, supporting your weight loss journey. And I'm so excited to know that you've done that. That's wonderful. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that you look at how the foods affect your emotions because ultra processed foods that are available now have been linked to depression as well. Mm -hmm. So it's really fascinating. You know, it's about observing what's already happening to you and being in tune with yourself. So it's mm -hmm. very, very interesting. And that's what I have felt is that you have to be open in science to new ideas or these are old ideas. But you have to be open to exploring these. At the end of the day, I think that neither allopathic medicine nor Ayurvedic medicine is the final answer. I think it's probably a combination of the two in terms of the principles. But the final answer does lie in evidence base, which hopefully we'll be able to find for some of these practices and which we are finding for example, the time-restricted eating, having a heavier breakfast, a lighter lunch, and an even lighter dinner, you know, stuff like that. And even the fasting principles that were there in ancient India, I don't know, they were all done for religious reasons, and they've been done across different religions. But they do find their importance even in management of obesity. 
So all of these things that we are finding, you know, data about now, they've been practiced in the past. These are not new principles that are coming in. So it's, yeah, it's very fascinating. Well, I was just, I know we're going to close here soon, but I wanted to share this quote because you had mentioned you were looking at the ancient textbooks. So in Ayurveda, there's three primary ancient textbooks. There's the Charaka Samhita, Ashtanga Haradayam, and Shushruta Samhita. And so these were said to be anywhere between 600 AD to 400 BCE in their age. So, you know, several thousands of years old. They were originally spoken in sutras. So they were almost prayers, you could say, that were eventually translated into written textbooks. And they're voluminous. They're huge textbooks. But there's this beautiful quote from Charaka that says, health and disease cannot be predetermined and human life can be prolonged or increased by paying attention to lifestyle. So, <laughs> I know, think we've come full circle now. <laughs> I really think that, uh, I always like to say, I mean, we sometimes, you know, as we extend into the modern era, we have a certain, and maybe it's a brash word, but a certain sort of snobbery that we have the whole picture. And I think you're absolutely right that it's that integrated experience of there's no way the ancient seers and saints who created these textbooks and these this knowledge base had access to what we have access to in science now there's no there's no conceivable way they knew about nf kappa b they didn't even know about hormones really technically speaking there's no mention of diabetes per se in ayurveda it's very complicated conversation that they were really looking at it in a very different way. So I think you're absolutely right that as we as we go deeper into the science and we get this systems epidemiology and this AI competency to see how I always think of it like if you are out in the ocean and you see the sea anemones where they move with the ocean current and there's a whole sort of there's this whole movement coordinated movement on the ocean floor. To me, that's how the human body works. There's this whole coordinated movement of body systems that we really don't, we're still going so far into the forest, into the trees, we don't see the forest. And so there's this myopic, you know, micro, micro, micro. So I do think science eventually will, like I said, maybe not in our lifetime, but eventually... (laughs) We'll get advanced enough that the various we'll find evidence for all of these things. The interconnectedness of the, interconnectedness, the organs, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so, I mean, we're we're finding we're finding data for meditation. We're finding data for mindful eating. We're finding data for, um, like it, I mentioned, yeah. intermittent fasting, and all of these practices have been there for for ages. These are not new practices, right? Absolutely. So yeah, so Sirichand, uh, you have a course, right? So tell us about that course. Sure. So as you can imagine, people had started, physicians had started asking me, "Well, I don't have quite the same time to take off or to go to study, but I'd still have interest and I'd like to learn more about it for my practice or for myself." So I created a twelve-week course for physicians specifically that looks at Interestingly enough, the first portion of the course is really about developing our intuition and connection to our own inner healer. And the second half of the course really looks at how we need those skills to actually learn Ayurveda. Believe it or not, Ayurveda doesn't exist so linearly as what our allopathic process. So we actually do a lot of creativity building, intuition building um, exercises that Um, are not a part of our curriculum or our training uh, (laughs) classically at all. So it's a a 12-week process that has, and each week we do a mindfulness class, a yoga class, a cooking class, um, a self-guided lecture, and then a group uh, session where we do a little bit of a sort of Ayurvedic-based coaching and distill the knowledge. But by no measure is it a replacement for in-depth dedicated Ayurvedic study. I know you may have a listener who's done a very thorough and intensive journey with Ayurveda in India through a BAMS program or further. So this is not meant to be 
in any way undermining or indicating that we are now able to prescribe and function as Ayurvedic physicians, but it allows us to open these doorways of communication. And I think the most exciting thing from the first group is that a number of people who participated are getting very creative in research models and thinking about how they'd like to study Ayurveda um, and, and really This is a conversation that I think is so important, and it really hasn't been happening in the U.S. I think in India and perhaps other parts of the world, but certainly not extensively in the U.S. So I'm really excited to support physicians in that creative connection to the Vaidyas, to these learned scholars of Ayurveda in India with with our community in a very respectful way. I think so often we can just dismiss someone's entire life study with one brushstroke and say, yeah. it's just not that simple to me. That's very cool. And this is only for physicians, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. And how can people reach you? I'm pretty easy to find on social media. So any of the platforms, you can find me, Siri Chand Khalsa or Dr. Siri Chand. I also have a website, drsirichand.com. There's a, a method on the website to send me an email, but there's also links to all my social media. So easy enough, I'm I'm fairly omnipresent on the platform. So if you comment on something I've posted, odds are you'll have me responding to you. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Any parting thoughts? I'm just really grateful for this opportunity. I appreciate your openness. And it's really exciting to me that we are, as a community within lifestyle medicine, looking to find these pathways for true prevention, not just early detection. And I think reversing obesity is a central part of that conversation. So I'm really grateful for the work you're doing. No, thank you. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much, Sirichand, for joining me on this amazing, amazing episode. And thank you, everyone, for listening in. And don't forget, you can head to www.decodingobesity.com forward slash hangout to sign up for the next Decoding Obesity Hangout. I'll see you all next time. You've been listening to the Decoding Obesity Podcast. Please remember, the information in this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the host and his guests and do not constitute medical advice. Views and opinions on this show do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. And that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening in. Don't forget to visit our website, www.decodingobesity.com for show notes and more info. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.